1997, at the Royal Academy of Arts in London, you could stroll through the gallery and see a sheep bisected, a self-portrait made with blood and what appeared to be a blue tent. With yellow interior walls, the tent seemed to glow from within. It was an invitation. Inside, there were rows of chunky letters cut from fabric. In quilt-like patterns, those letters spelt out names. Lucy Baxter, Billy Childish, Frank Burby. The piece is called Everyone I've Ever Slept With, 1963 to 1995, by the artist Tracy Emin. To find something you genuinely love and you want to know everything about is one of the biggest gifts. The actor Russell Tovey first saw the piece when he was just 16. Russell wasn't just affected by the tent with its applique names. The work expanded what he thought was possible. For so long growing up, I thought, if I'm not the regular boy, then I should just keep my mouth shut. These things that I've had interest in, when I suddenly come out as being a geek, it's changed my life. And then when Russell was 25... He went from being a working actor to a recognisable one with his role in the play, then the film The History Boys. In the film, he plays a smart but unrefined student trying to get into the top schools of England. The movie was a hit, and with his compensation, he bought a Tracy Emin monoprint, his first original piece of art. And I remember being shaking, going, I can't believe I'm allowed to stand here and look at these drawings. For Russell, this was a first step in not only becoming a respected art collector, but also becoming a sort of contemporary art hype man. And today, someone whose passion for art and ability to share it without pretension has reached millions of people. I'm Damian Bradfield, and this is Influence, a podcast by WeTransfer. Influence is a show about Influence, who has it, who wants it, and how to use it for good. Russell Tovey is a British actor who starred in Angels in America, HBO's Looking, Years and Years, and has made appearances in everything from Gavin and Stacey to Doctor Who to The Muppets. He's an art collector particularly interested in queer art and works by underrepresented artists. Apart from his film work, he's also working on a documentary about the artist David Robilliard, who died of AIDS in 1988. Russell hosts a hugely successful podcast with his friend Robert Diamond called Talk Art, where the two interview contemporary artists in a way that feels fresh, approachable, and inviting. He's put out a massive welcome map for would-be art fans, and his enthusiasm is getting people in the gallery door. Russell Tovey, I am so glad to have you on the show. Oh, Damien, I am thrilled to be here. Thank you very much. You've made a second career out of sharing your love for art, obviously developing a very, very well-listened-to podcast. What we were always looking for ourselves is to break out and connect with people that felt like art wasn't for them and were put off by the art conversations that you would hear that you would be privy to because there would be so many references in there it would feel uh, academic it would feel elitist it would feel like you weren't part of the members club and that was always frustrating right to start with we want to set up a platform just for us to be geeks so it came from a love of art and wanting to share that like a, a regular 
uh, review show where we'd go, what shows have you seen this week, Rob? And I'd be like, oh, I've been to the Francis Bacon at the Royal Academy. It's fantastic. And we'd talk about that for a bit. And then we started inviting guests on. And then it sort of grew into this thing. Yeah. But it was grown from a place of enthusiasm and passion and being a geek. You know, we started in August 2018, so pre-pandemic. We didn't set up to take over the world. You know, we didn't say we want to make it celebrity-driven, only famous artists. We were like, it's non-hierarchical. We're going to be talking to, yes, a super famous artist, but then a really super emerging artist that's had like one show or just graduated or still a student. Someone who collects art, someone who's got a massive collection, massive budget, someone who's got limited collection because they've got a limited budget. It was about art for everyone and making that the potential of what you can achieve if you are interested in art and to say that art is for you. And every episode, I always consider my mum and a couple of friends, and I think if this connects to them, then it's a success. And then if my mum texts me and she listens to all of them, she's like, that was a good one. I like that. I'm like, great, done it. That's it. So what if she doesn't text you? She, she'll always text me. She'll always be, I wasn't sure of that one. Uh, sometimes people's <laughs> accents annoy her, so she has to switch off halfway through. But normally she kind of sticks with them and she learns and what's been amazing is that I would go to exhibitions with my mum and I walk around there she'd be like oh I like that that really reminds me of that artist you had on because they were referencing Van Gogh wouldn't they and this looks like Van Gogh is that her voice yeah that's my mum's voice if you, if you ever meet my mum <laughs> that is my mum she is like Pamela from Gavin and Stacey she's like oh hello yeah. oh hello darling yeah no actually what I do think she's like amazing my mum yeah, that sounds so charming yeah she's hysterical but that that ability to give her the opportunity to have a discourse in art is probably one of the greatest achievements of the podcast that people feel like it's for them. And I always feel like with art, when something becomes yours, it's when you have the ability to critique it. We're all brought up in a society, Western society, where we will watch a movie, we will read a book, we'll watch a TV show, we'll listen to a, a singer's latest album, and we have the ability to critique it but we're never given the ability to critique art. So it doesn't belong to us. No one's ever taught to go, well, this art is good, this art isn't good. This shows that this artist has been influenced by this person and that person. If you're not given the ability to critique something or have the wherewithal or the knowledge to do it, then you're shut out. So that's why people suddenly feel like it isn't for me. And suddenly there's this little tiny crew of people that are, parenthesis, critiquing it. And they become like the members of that club and you feel alienated and you feel angry. And then you have like red top newspapers slagging off the Turner Prize every year, slagging off auction prices. And then it becomes about the commercial side of art. How much is that worth? Because we're not given the ability. But as soon as you give someone the ability to critique art or as soon as you tell someone how to see art, then it changes everything. The amount of times that I've been in front of a painting of someone and they're like, I don't get it. And you're like, well... It's this sort of colour because this artist was feeling that. They're influenced by this. This was going on in their life. If you look in the bottom corner there, that looks like a figure, but it could be like a spectre of the past or the future. Suddenly someone will go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, I like that. Oh, I can see that. And it opens a little door. And you go, well, just go through that little door. And that's going to open another little door. And it goes on and on and on. And suddenly it becomes like this thing that belongs to you because you have been told how to see and you had the ability to break it down. And it's giving yourself permission not to like everything. Yeah. Because there's this thing that if it's in a gallery space and you don't understand it, you're the person that's not right. You should be getting it. That isn't the case. You can see a million things in an art gallery and there will be nothing you like. And there'll be one thing that you go, 
I like this. Then you lean into that and you go, why do I like this? What is this doing this to me? What is the point of this? And know that these artists want you to see their work. And it's just another form of storytelling. You keep using the word um, little doors. Yeah. So it feels to me as if it's still something that you, you're doing sort of a bit secretly, finding a little door still that's a surprise, that's a little nugget. A hundred percent. But my soulmate when it comes to art is Rob Diamond, who I do talk up with. And when I met him, I was like, oh, okay, there's someone else just as fucking crazy as me, just as much of a loon about the ephemera, about the nuances and subtleties of the art that we're looking at. I do have these little doors for myself because I am someone that looks at art constantly. I go and see everything. I, I form relationships with people. I'm a collector. I've started curating. I'm, I'm writing about art. I'm writing essays in books and stuff for people. But it's mine. It's my little special thing. So these little doors I'm opening up on a daily basis, on my own at home, via my phone. And I'm not sharing that with anyone because no one else needs to know about it. Every day is like little mini breakthroughs of going, oh, I understand that now. Oh, that's that artist that they were talking about every day and that's something that will never end there is still an element of elitism i think that is a barrier to a lot of people getting in to see some early work mm. a lot of the issue i think is still in the hands of a lot of the gallerists that thrive from that ambiguity and control or gray matter mm, i agree just remember that the artist who's made the art inside wants you to see it so whatever barriers you've got to go through know that that person is trying to tell you a story They're not making their art just the best artists, I'm saying. I'm sure some do. Not making their art just to sell to a collector, just to put in a vault somewhere. They're making art because that's their form, their mode of communication. Because words aren't enough. So they have to make art because they want to express something. And just know that's there for you. It's like you're not expected to go into a library and go, right, I'm going to read every book. You can't. It's absolutely impossible. And you've no interest in every book. But you go to the section you like... You go, all right, I'm in the travel section. I want to know about, you know, Latin America. And and you go, well, this is interesting. I'm going to look at this, this, this. It's the same with art. Is that you go, right, well, I like pictures of dogs. Great. Then go and find a painting of a dog somewhere. Is that how you started? Well, no, I mean, that's not how I started. I don't know what. (laughs) I was always drawn to cartoons. I loved cartoons growing up. What cartoons? Ren and Stimpy, Beavis and Butthead. Obviously, like I met Chuck Jones when I was nine. He was coming out of the Warner Brothers store on Regent Street and it was just opening. <laughs> and I went to my mum, that's Chuck Jones. He's like, how do you know? Who is he? And I said, he's, he does like Elmer Fudd and Bugs Bunny. He's the original. Like, She's like, oh, and I went and said hello to him. Oh, yeah? And I wrote him a letter and he sent me back like an original drawing, which is somewhere in my parents' loft. <laughs> but I was always drawn to cartoons. And then when I realised that actually there were artists that are working with the cartoon, like Roy Lichtenstein, Pop Art, Keith Haring, uh, Andy Warhol, Patrick Caulfield. And suddenly you could see these on gallery walls. I thought, well, I haven't got to grow up. I can still like these cartoons. And they're on a gallery wall and suddenly I'm seen as mature and I'm seen as cultured that I'm like really responding well to this. <laughs> so that was my route in. So everything I'm drawn to now is has a cartoon sort of energy or the figure in it is cartoony or the colour is very vibrant. And that's my taste. Funny, I'm very similar. Yeah? What was yeah. your cartoons in? I have a collection of Beano comics that uh, mm. is in a trunk that goes from like 1982 to 1994 every single week. Wow. And I love the madness, like the, you know, the madness of the, yeah. the comic book illustrator or R. Crumb, I think is fascinating to dip into their world for a bit, you know. Yeah, the R. Crumb women, them giant women with their big bulbous like calf muscles and they're like marching through town, giantesses. 
And then these little kind of like feral men hanging off their legs, like desperately <laughs> trying to get their attention. It's amazing. Those guys, girls were always doing it really, in my opinion, for the, for the love of it. And there wasn't really any money in the illustration and mm. comics and stuff. But I feel like recently there's a lot more interest in it. That style, definitely. Yeah, moved over to fine art, totally. But if you're looking at satirists, if you're looking at people that cover political things every week, the New Yorker I follow on Instagram and they always do like a one-line joke comic strip and they're always genius. They're so contemporary. They're of the zeitgeist. They're of the exact moment. They are They are depicting society with one line. It's, it's, a, it's an incredible skill. But if you are going to collect that, they do become historical documents. Oh, I'm amazing respect for the writers of South Park and oh, yeah. the Simpsons. Well, when you see these things about the Simpsons predicting the future over and over and over again, it's kind of terrifyingly <laughs> terrifying, you know? Because <laughs> like, how? Yeah. How? The genius. Geniuses. Because it's geniuses. Absolute geniuses, yeah. yeah. Do you always look at work and think, I've got to read, I've got to understand what this is about? Or do you also look at something and go, I just don't like that? Well... Um, if I like something, I do want to know everything about it, but that's a pleasure. Doing something like talk art feels like I'm on a lifelong dissertation. You find all these little estuaries that go off. I, I think of the art history, art world, as like a family tree, and then you have all these kind of bastard children that go off, illegitimate <laughs> you know, heirs to the throne that sort of get sidelined. But every time you interview someone new, they will spark something or, or open as I said these little doors and you suddenly go and you go oh my god or there's whole art movements that you've just neglected they've been so peripheral they've been there the whole time the other day I walked around the National Portrait Gallery and as I've got older I appreciate the gift of what that gallery is and the more I know today the more I learn about the past everything's happened before every line brushstroke an artist makes every pencil mark they make is in response to everything that's gone before the more you look, the more you learn. You know, for some people that might sound like, oh my God, that, that terrifies me, it's never ending. But for me, the fact that it's never ending exhilarates me. There's all these art movements all around the world and it's been very Eurocentric art history. And now we're looking at artists, indigenous artists in Australia. Steve Martin just posted something about these indigenous artists in Australia and he's someone who was buying and collecting African-American artists, when no one was really looking at them, people like Norman Lewis, Alma Thomas, fundamental to art history and completely embedded. But he was doing it at a time when people were easily overlooking them and not appreciating them. And now they're gods. And they were gods then, but they just were not seen within the same context. You didn't study art history, did you? No. Would you? Yeah, I would love it. Yeah, I'm the same. I keep talking about it. <laughs> it's, a lot to, it's a lot to bite off nowadays. It's a, yeah, it's too much, too many bills to pay. But <laughs> to find something you genuinely love and you want to know everything about is one of the biggest gifts. To be enthusiastic is something you should never apologize for. And to, to know what you want to do or what you are interested in and not have any shame about that. I, I was someone that's always interested in everything and I had a lot of shame about it. Did you? Yeah, because I wasn't into football. Um, you know, I'm gay, so I had different persuasions. But I wasn't a lad. I didn't have a team. I didn't have the right trainers at one point. I did it. I remember I got a pair of Reebok Classics, changed my life. <laughs> but I had all of these like things that I was interested in, but I'd never share them with anyone. I thought it made me weird. These things that I've had interest in, when I've suddenly gone, come out 
as being a geek, it's changed my life. It's made my life better, so much better, so much more enriching. Made me find friendships and, and form relationships and allyships with so many people internationally through things that I'm interested in and finding that common denominator. But for so long growing up, I thought, if I'm not the regular boy, then I should just keep my mouth shut. So I was looking at your IMDb um, profile. If I look at, just from an acting point of view, what you've been doing the like ni- 19 years, I can't remember exactly how many it was, but... Well, I started professionally when I was 11, but I guess I was just like doing this and that, not really thinking about it, just thinking I'm an actor. And then after that, when I got in National Theatre and doing the Hitch Boys, it's like right now you have to start, uh, think more about what you're doing and what you want to do, saying no, saying yes, putting yourself out there. So I've just turned 40. So I'd say, yeah, 18, 19 years properly. And you've been busy. I mean, you know, just from an acting point of view, you're busy. Then you put everything else on top of it. Mm. Do you need that? Yeah. Somebody said I'm creatively fertile and I feel like that and I'm I'm taking up all the space and if I'm enthusiastic and like something, I'm going for it. The more things you do, the more opportunities you have and the more people say yes when you go to them, I want to do this. Like Damien, you for example, I'm now making a documentary and you're communicating with me and supporting me via We Transfer, We Present on an artist I love called David Rebilliard. But if I was an actor that said, I want to do this documentary, give me some money. You might be more reluctant to support me, say, if I hadn't had a podcast where I'm talking about art, written a book that was a Sunday Times bestseller about art, writing this, doing that. But when you see someone that's taking risks and trying stuff out, you go like, yeah, all right. How do you you balance it? I mean, you say you've got two careers. It's not like you're doing a bit of talk art and a bit of acting. Well, I've got three careers. I'm writing now. I've got a show picked up by Sky. We filmed the pilot. I've got two other TV shows in development. I'm doing this documentary. Right. I think when you enjoy something, you find the time to do it. Noel Coward said, sometimes work is more fun than fun. <laughs> and it's true. Because I love when I'm doing something work-wise that I love. And it is fun. And I would rather do that than go clubbing. I would rather sit there and do research on artists that I love than say, go and get off my face somewhere. I make room for that as well. (laughs) But my priorities are things that excite me and inspire me. And that's what I prioritise. It's easy. There's an article written on um, Art Review a couple of weeks back now, probably, um, that talks about treat brain. It's where we, we become so bruised, I guess, by COVID that we can only allow ourselves nice little treats. Mm. You know, we can't handle anything that's a little bit too dark or heavy. And you've also said that playing certain roles can really fuck you up. Oh, yeah, 100%. Totally fuck you up. Oh, really? The the roles that have really fucked me up have taught me loads about myself. So what did? Um, One of the biggest ones was I did a play called Angels in America at the National Theatre. It's a Tony Kushner play and it's about the AIDS epidemic and I was playing a repressed homosexual Mormon and it's two-part plays. One's three hours, the other part is four hours and we were alternating, doing it one night, then the other night, then two show days. Heavy show. My character in Millennium Approaches, which is the first play, is unravelling and realises he's homosexual and has to leave his wife. In the second play... He becomes the symbol of everything that's bad about America in what the writer's done. He's uh, internally homophobic. 
He works with Roy Cohen, who is the image of evil, who again was an internally homophobic, practicing homosexual, who passed these laws that destroyed lives totally. This part was so intense. And at the end, everyone has their moment where they can leave. They've been given hope. They've been given this gift to go and have, enjoy more life. Whereas my character, Joe Pitt, gets slapped by his wife and then just disappears into the bowels of the stage and you never see him again. And his mother ends up becoming friends with all the other gay boys in the show that hated her son. And the writers create this. And I would sit in the dressing rooms and I'd be like, I, I feel like absolute shit. And I would walk home and I'd be so depressed because you just have four hours of people screaming in your face telling you you're a piece of shit. And how long did it run? Six months. And then it went to Broadway. It went to Broadway and I couldn't do it. I loved it as well and it changed my life and it changed my career and it was an incredible show and I astral projected it because all my life I wanted to be in Angels in America. From when I was 17, I watched it, the HBO TV show, and... Every time I would do a TV job and I, I was trying to get into character, I'd be like, imagine you're an Angels in America on HBO. And I would suddenly be able to find this sort of thing that I wanted. So that screwed me up bad, badly. You mentioned this documentary you're doing on David Rubiliard. When you talked about it with me, it was obvious that this was something you had to do, as in it was your mission. What is it about his work that means so much to you? I just connected with it. He died in 1988 of AIDS when he was 36. And he was from Guernsey and he left Guernsey and he had quite uh, a religious upbringing. So he left there and he came to London. He was a poet and he would write and he had a notebook with him the whole time. And he would write all these kind of one-liners or small poems. And then Gilbert and George discovered him because he was... um, he was a labourer and he was fixing some stairs in their house or something. And then he said, I've got this poetry and they read it. And they started to publish his text. And then they said, during an opening, you should start making paintings with these kind of poems involved. And then he started making these works of art. And people really responded to it. I would read his words and they would connect to me. And I'm like, this was written then. It feels so contemporary, so fresh. And I know what he's writing about. Did you give an example? Well, I've, I've, I, I had safe sex last night. Why? I went home alone. Oh, yeah. Things like that that are just really simple. And that, that's the ongoing thing. And then there's longer ones. You know, I asked for an Adonis, not a donut. That's another one. They're really simple, but they're, they're like comic strips. You know, like we are talking earlier on. He never performed his own poetry because he didn't like the sound of his own voice. So we had a troupe of these two people, Rosemary Turner and Leo Burley, who were called the Rebilliards, and they used to perform at Café de Paris or Heaven Nightclub, and they'd perform his text while he stood there and watched. I connected to it in such a way that I thought, you know what? It's just timing. He was part of the unlucky generation. I've inherited, as a gay man, the trauma of what it is to have lived through that. I don't know what that is exactly, but I am of the age when it was happening. And as a community, we have inherited trauma of what it is to be gay. But I thought, he could have been me. If I'd have been born 10 years earlier, what's to say that I wouldn't have contracted AIDS and died? What's to say that we wouldn't have met and been lovers or friends or enemies? He's been so overlooked. And like so many 
queer people who died of AIDS because all their champions died of AIDS. And, and, and it was such a fucking plague that just like wiped out whole swathes of culture. Nobody could keep up with it. And they were missing. And now we're reassessing that. And I feel so emboldened and a responsibility to tell David's story and to bring his words to life and to make people realise that he was there, he is there, and he is part of art history and he's important. He's been silenced. He's been pushed to the side. He's been ignored. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that you don't ignore him anymore. Do you, uh, do you own any of his work? Yeah, I own uh, a lot of drawings. Uh, I bought a big painting a little while ago from 1988, which is the year he died. I have this visceral, guttural punch when I see his work. And suddenly if someone shows me something that I haven't seen, I I gasp uncontrollably. I don't know what it is, but I'm like, oh my God, I've not seen that. Would you say that you focus on collecting queer art? I love historical queer art. I'm buying David Billiard's work. I'm buying Derek Jarman work. I'm buying John Minton work. I'd curate a show on Hugh Steers, who was an American artist who died of AIDS. There's something suddenly important and generational to me that feels like a respect to be collecting their work and bringing it alongside contemporary artworks that happen now. But I think I started off buying works by British female artists, Tracy Emin, Rebecca Warren, and that's continued with artists like Rose Wiley, I've had this affinity with that. And then I've had an affinity with self-taught, disabled outsider artists. I've had an affinity with queer artists. I've had an affinity with artists of colour. That is where my taste has gone. And I don't know if that is because as a gay man myself, you are seen as the underdog in society. You're not like a straight white man. I think when it comes to collecting art, I'm I'm more interested in the art that has been not seen as the dominant trend. That is the artists and that's the artwork that's being made and has been made that I have more of a excitement about. But yeah, I still obviously still love the dominant trend. There's so many artists there that have changed the world. But for me to collect and to live with, I I prefer the story of the people that haven't been the number one. So what's the balance of story to work? Well, it all depends. I mean, if you're looking at historical pieces, then the story's there. You know, if I'm looking at work by David Billiard, the story's already been told and you know it. You look at work by Derek Jarman, watch his movies, you read his diaries, Modern Nature's a masterpiece. You've got the whole of their output there to assess but then you're looking at emerging artists and you can be a patron that's the thing when i have lots of people now who say to me what should i be buying should i be buying this is it a good investment i said don't look at his investment for like art. look at his investment in someone's potential you can be a patron you can buy that painting of theirs for a thousand pounds and you're buying their studio equipment you're paying for their studio fees you're encouraging them to keep going you can use your social media and post their work and promote them and become an ally and support them for the rest of their career. Isn't that more exciting than going, oh, I'm going to go and buy that blue chip artist for a million pounds? That million pounds could change and support and encourage 
hundreds of emerging artists internationally who you then could have a friendship with. That's amazing. You bought a Tracy Emin piece with your first check from the History Boys film. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, bought a Tracy Emin monoprint. So when was that? Well, I was 24. So it was a work from 1998. I didn't realise when you buy art, if you buy it in the UK, you have to pay VAT. Now, I went in and I saw, and I remember I went into the White Cube Gallery in, in Hoxton Square and they took me upstairs and I remember feeling like I shouldn't be in here. Someone's going to tap me on the shoulder and say, what are you doing? Get out. <laughs> and I walked through all the offices and people like looked at me and I was like, this is terrifying. And then they had all the drawings laid out on a table and I remember being shaking and going, like, I can't believe I'm allowed to stand here and look at these drawings. And we, we chose one of them. I think we got it down to £3,100 or something like that. Maybe it was a bit more. And I remember leaving there thinking, okay, I can do that. That's my History Boys money. Oh, yeah. And then I got the invoice come through on email and it had plus VAT. At the time, it was 17.5%. I remember going, what's VAT? The woman was like, you have to pay VAT. I was like, I don't want to pay VAT. Do I have to pay these extra hundreds and hundreds of pounds? Yes. And I was like, oh, my God. And that was like, oh, shit, that's rubbish. you got to pay VAT. <laughs> And then now, like, in, you know, if you buy stuff from abroad, pre-Brexit. Yeah, it's, it's a mess now. Yeah. I just want to go back to your salary from the History Boys. So for doing that movie, you got paid three and a half grand. Yeah, we got about three and a half grand each, I think. Four grand, something like that. Wow. I thought actors got loads of money. We think too much. <laughs> too much. <laughs> no, 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 no. It was like an independent British movie. Oh, it's a beautiful film. Oh, Yeah. We did the play at National, then we did the radio play, then we shot the film in five or six weeks. Then two days later, we flew around the world for nine months. Hong Kong, New Zealand, Sydney, then we was on Broadway for six months. And we came back from Broadway. The next day, we was at the Odeon Leicester Square with Prince Charles and Camilla for the royal premiere of the History Boys movie. And we all sat there, and I was in the same row as Charles and Camilla. And I'm looking over, thinking, I think Camilla's going to sleep. <laughs> and I was... I, I was like, oh, this, I don't get it. This, this film's, I don't, it's just like too long. It's boring. I don't understand. They've changed bits from the play. I'm not sure of those. And then we went out and we partied and I think I cried in the street. And then I haven't seen a movie since. And at the start of lockdown, Steve was like, my boyfriend was like, should we watch History Boys? And I was like, oh, yeah, if you want. Okay. I don't know if it's any good, really. I put it on. Within about two minutes, I was crying. And he's like, what's wrong with you? I said, well, A, nostalgia for that time and how quick this time has gone because that's like 16 years now and we still talk about it like it was a couple of years ago. Yeah. But B, I get what we're talking about in that movie now. Oh, yeah? I understand longing. I understand heartbreak. I understand loneliness and desire and all of these things that we were, Alan Bennett was writing about as a man in his late 70s at the time and these characters are saying that I had no idea what it was at that age. Right. And now I'm watching it going, oh my God, I know what that line means. Oh my God, that's so painful and so true. And I was like, this is a fucking good film. And it is. Wow, I think that's beautiful that you can say that about your own films. I can be a fan of some things. Like you talked about years and years. I can watch years and years. Like we watched it again with Steve as a fan. I did a TV show called Looking on HBO, which is about a group of friends in San Francisco, yeah. which only sadly got two seasons. I think it was ahead of its time. If it came out now, I think it'd be a different situation. I watched that as a fan. I love it, even though I'm in it. 
And then there's other things I just won't go anywhere near. I'll watch it once and think, got away with that, don't go near it again. But <laughs> History Boys, I don't think I'll rush and watch it every week, but if someone wanted to watch it again in the future, I would happily sit down and watch it again. What's really exciting you? So something that you're going to be doing in the future, art, film? Creating your own content. Tool Cut's been amazing because we've made our own content that came from nothing and appeared out of nowhere. And we've made something that's really respected. And I think for me, creatively, I want to write and create stuff that affects people. When I was younger, I watched Robin Williams in Dead Poet Society and it changed my life because his performance made me feel something I'd never felt before. What did you feel? Emotional, moved, incredibly affected by this teacher by these students, by this story, by this need to read text and perform it and this need to be on stage, this need to tell stories and to connect to your fellow man through stories, storytelling. That's what it is, you know, I'm a storyteller. I don't remember thinking it then but realising now that I thought I want to do a job where I can make someone feel the way that he's just made me feel. And that was acting. Do you have people come up to you and tell you that now? Yeah. Oh, yeah? My biggest successes have been plays, and that's when I've had most people be like, thanks. It's just great, but I, I just am mad, isn't it, that Robin Williams, who I never met, has had no idea who I was or where I was, that this little boy in Essex, in his front room, watching him on TV, and he changed his life. And he had no, he had no idea. And how did he know? It's this man over in San Francisco making this film would affect me and made me who I am today. That is what drives me. And to make shows, to create characters from me and put them out there in the world and them have an effect on people would be the biggest privilege. And that's what's driving me. I was with my friend two days ago, Brett Goldstein, who is... Incredible writer, stand-up comic actor. He does Ted Lasso. Like, incredibly gifted. He's now just signed this first look deal with Warner Brothers. I don't know how for how much money. I know I'm not there yet, but I suddenly went, fuck, that's why, that's that to me. What an achievement. What an incredible thing you've, he's done. Deservedly. So amazing. My first instinct was, fuck. And my second instinct was, that's what I'm going to do. So it inspired me. So watching his success, watching people like Phoebe Wallerbridge, watching people like Michaela Cole, watching people like Ashling B, you know, you know, the UK creatives telling stories that come from them that are changing the world, that are changing the game, that are changing the narrative. I would love that. That's what I'm pushing towards. Who's an artist that you think people should know about right now? Well, there's two British female abstract artists. Rachel Jones. There was a Haywood gallery on the South Bank had a group show, a painting show, and she, for me, was one of the standouts. Her alongside another British artist called Louise Giovanelli is incredibly exciting. And what is it that draws you to them? Their skill, the story they're telling, their references and how they're making it their own. Their energy, their personalities, just as people, they're just so cool. 
I was at an opening with Rachel Jones and I was stood there with Rachel and Louise and then there's another young artist called Mandy El Saig who is another abstractionist, British-based artist, female, incredible. And I stood there chatting away to him thinking, this is the stuff of legends and they're going to be written about in art history. They're going to be referenced. They're going to inspire and they're going to be go on and do incredible, amazing exhibitions and influence whole generations of other artists. And we're all just standing there having a chit-chat at an opening, drinking, you know, warm champagne. That's, for me, is the biggest privilege, is to just be in the room. I guess it's a line from Hamilton, in the room where it happens. Can you be in that room because of who you are? Can anybody be in that room? Anybody can go to an opening. Anyone can go and see an art show. Anyone can engage with artists on social media, however they communicate. Anyone can go to any gallery and go in and see the art and join their newsletters and get to know more. But what happens if you haven't got 10,000 quid or 1,000 quid to put down on a, on a painting? Can you still be relevant? You encourage them by following them, by going to see their shows, by putting it on your social media, by buying their publications, by buying the poster for the show you love. Surround yourself with art. If you haven't got a budget, go and get a postcard from the Tate of something that you've been connected to and put it on your fridge. It's them incremental, tiny bits of culture, bits of storytelling that can make your life better. Art makes your life better, fundamentally, on all levels. Russell, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. And that's our episode for today. Thank you to Russell Tovey for talking art with us. Influence is hosted by me, Damian Bradfield. Our producer is the lovely Rachel Swaby, with editing from Audrey No and Elise Hugh. Sound engineering is done by Mark Bush, and our WeTransfer creative producer is Kiara O'Shea. You can find Influence on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, even if it's on Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please follow, rate, and leave us a review. Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer produced in association with Reasonable Volume. 